I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k flats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Hey there, it's Lars. Thanks for checking out the Lars Larson podcasting experience and have a fantastic day. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this First Amendment Friday. Pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. Or you can go to my website. The vote counts the same at LarsLarson.com. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. This week would have marked the 100th birthday birthday of a man who did so much for the state of Oregon. The late Mark Hatfield won statewide election eight times. He became Secretary of State. He became governor. He became a U.S. Senator for Oregon for 30 years. Before that, he served in the U.S. Navy, commanding a landing craft at Iwo Jima in Okinawa. He walked in the ashes of Hiroshima after the U.S. ended the war by dropping the atomic bomb. I'm proud to have called Senator Hatfield a friend, so I heard some of those stories firsthand from him in his latter years. It should come as no surprise then that a man so talented and his wonderful wife Antoinette, who's still with us, would have talented children, and one of them joins me now. Visco Hatfield is a renowned photographer shooting portraits of the likes of Matt Damon, Michael Douglas, Queen Latifah, Debbie Harry, even Anthony Fauci. Visco, Oregon loved your dad, but your dad would not be happy with the place, uh, the way the place looks today, would he? Well, good afternoon, Lars. Thanks for having me on. I, I would say he would not recognize uh, either the great state of Oregon or the city of Portland uh, in its current condition. You had, uh, you had guts this week because you came to the memorial that marked what would have been your father's 100th birthday. And with Governor Kate Brown sitting right in the front row, you gave it to him with both barrels. I'd, I'd like my audience to hear some of what you said, and, and I guess with your permission, I'd even post your remarks uh, on my website if, if you don't mind. Well, I'd, I don't mind. Uh, I'm proud of every word that I spoke, and the intention was not necessarily to, to fire off both barrels, but just to speak the observational truth as I've seen it from the, from the windows of the MAX light rail train coming in from the airport uh, several years ago. That was a, a shocking realization of the garbage and the filth and the tent cities and, and tarps that, that cover uh, just about anybody who wants to live on the streets. And I thought, what's going on here? Uh, you know, of course, as a, a witness uh, through the television for 100 days, I saw per- Portland burn and went down to those very places in front of the courthouse. Uh, I was out there for the ice uh, building takeover and walked down into the train tracks where the tents were set up and that whole portion was cordoned off by people who took over. Uh, I found it shocking. Um, Even today, as as cleaned up as it is, uh, all of the evidence of 
you know, freedom of speech and, and hate and protest and despair and lack of opportunity and drug addiction and mental illness, it's all still down there on the street. And I'm not sure there's any way you can disassociate the public policy and all of these ill effects rain down on the good people of Oregon. Uh, and quite honestly, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic and watch changes uh, for improvement, but I don't really see them coming from public servants. Well, in Visco, I'm talking to Visco. Forgotten. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I'm talking to Visco Hadfield, who's the son of the late Senator Mark O. Hadfield. Um, one of the things I liked in particular that you said, and I'll read a, just a couple of lines of it, because you're doing something that is not being done nearly enough here in the Pacific Northwest to call out those responsible and say you're not doing your job. So part of your remarks this week, you said it is called public service for a reason, because you are meant to serve the public, not yourself, serve the public, not corporations, serve the public, not special interests. Politics, it's a people thing, and the people are waiting patiently for now. The abdication of leadership to those corrupted by power will be marked on the timeline of history as being responsible for the era of what I call the hypocrisy democracy in which we now live. Overlords of elites with one set of rules and a lifestyle worth keeping and protecting and everybody else considered too stupid or too lazy or too racist. Fill in the adjective of derision is your choice. If it's not, if it's not been uttered, it's at least been implied. You, you sent that message right to the top, the current top leader in the state of Oregon, the woman who has the job your dad held and, and, and performed so admirably. Well, I'll tell you, I also said, uh, I said all of those things, and, and you're exactly right. Those are, are exact quotes. Um, I also said that, you know, dad was someone I remember he would say, attack the policy, not the person. So, you know, I then sort of kicked it off by saying to all the politicians who shall remain nameless, but I, I think that, you you know, if you're not going to mention their names or attack them, I think you attack the policy, and the policies have been pretty clear, at least the effect of the policies. And I just don't know when, you know, when a can-do attitude from politicians became a won't-do. And quite honestly, it feels like, you know, it's, it's that, I, I also said, as reheated partisan bickering and failed policies of self-interested politicians. And, and really, the those hundred days of watching a federal courthouse be attacked and, and attempted to be burned down and became a rallying point and obviously a, a flashpoint at uh, protesting the federal government and the president of the time, it, it really is nothing more than destructive and cheap political theater. It doesn't, I don't know how it helps people. So I think there's, you know, they've lost the compass. Uh, the, the point is to help people, not help themselves. And I just don't see, uh, you know, very much in the way of a forward positive effort um, in anywhere in politics, uh, it really seems like they're more important, um, more concerned with keeping their job. That that's somehow more important. And you know, you don't have to just stand in Portland and watch this. As I said, you could Cincinnati and Philadelphia, Hartford, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco. You can pick a, a large city, a small city, or a town, and you see it everywhere. No, and it, there doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be any accountability because I mean, your dad won election eight eight, eight times statewide. The people who hold these positions today won election, the mayor, the governor, all these people, city council members, and yet they listen to a mob in the streets, which, by the way, Visco, I have to give it to them this way. When the mob said defund the police, uh, you know, the, the powers that be who'd won election from the general electorate said, we're going to listen to a couple of thousand people in the streets instead of the 800,000 or the 4 million we actually represent. And the mob in the streets got what it wanted to a large degree. I guess you can't argue with their success, even though their success is the demise of a formerly great city. 
Well, look, I feel I feel for Portland. I feel for Oregon. I was uh, I was in New York during 9/11, and there was an effort by Oregonians. They saw how badly the city was hurt. Uh, financially, emotionally, and Oregonians rallied. They came to New York. They they uh, pledged to spend money. They tried single-handedly to turn that city around. You know, the, the people are good out there. This is a uh, this is not an indictment of people. I mean, whether it's entrepreneurs or athletes or small business owners or forest rangers, there there are good people all over that state, and I don't think they're being served in the best manner with the people they're putting in power. At one point, I said. Raise your hand in this room if you want higher taxes, worse education, fewer jobs, and more crime. And guess what? Those four questions, not a single person raised their hand. I declared that common ground. I said that was a consensus worth building on. But the more I think about it, the more I realize that there were probably a few liars in that room because a lot of the policies that are out there right now are doing exactly that. It's increasing crime. It's increasing taxes. Education is worse. There are fewer jobs. It's not working. So let's be honest if we're going to have honest conversations. Visco Hatfield, the son of the late Senator Mark Hatfield, will be back on a First Amendment Friday. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network, proudly serving the states of Oregon, Washington and Idaho with honestly provocative talk on a daily basis. And these days it's not that hard to live up to the honestly provocative part uh, because you frequently hear me talk about the fake news media. And you say, yeah, yeah, Lars, that's just talk. Now, I'll tell you what. What happens when somebody who is a convicted criminal, armed with a gun, with a record, runs from the cops, possibly intoxicated, and then ends up getting shot to death, and the major media says, why, this person is a person of color. He's not a drunk driver, convicted criminal. He's a hero. Well, I thought we'd talk about that with my friend Josh Marquis, former district attorney who joins me now. And let's talk about Derek DeWayne Clark, who is, as the Portland Tribune described him, remembered for his efforts to reduce inmate recidivism. Actually, I think it's amazingly unwoke of the Tribune to not refer to them as adults in custody, but actually refer to them as inmates. Josh, welcome back to the program. Thank you. And and it would be worse if it wasn't. It's not just uh, the Portland Tribune. It's at least one version of the Oregonian, although Noel Crombie did write a, a completely different story, much better one two days later. But most of the other uh, legacy media have these stories talking about this wonderful young man. Well, what, what we can find out about him is, A, he was c- convicted of a Measure 11 crime involving the use of a gun. Now, you know, a lot of controversy about guns. So presumably we would all agree that people with felony records who use guns violently should definitely not be the people we allow to have guns. But this quote, so-called teacher in training, as he's referred to on some of these websites, was essentially, as you mentioned, fleeing from uh, Clackamas County officers. They were chasing him because he was, because he was a drunk driver. His response was to come out of his car with a gun in his hand. I can assure you that, as, as a longtime law enforcement officer, that if I uh, didn't stop, uh, or even if I did, and the first thing I did was bail out of the car with a gun in my hand, you wouldn't be talking to me because I'd be shot. 
No, and yet, and yet the, I call them the daily dead fish wrapper, and occasionally the Oregonian, under Therese Bottomley's guidance as editor, will do a decent story. But here are the first two lines of this story about a convicted criminal with a gun in his hand who's shot by the cops. The man shot and killed by law enforcement officers in Clackamas County last week was a member of a nonprofit organization that worked with adults and youth in prison. Derek Clark of Tigard was shot and killed by police near the intersection of Southeast Wood and Railroad Avenues, according to the Clackamas County DA's office. You've got to read a long ways into that story to find out, oh, he was also a convicted criminal. He'd been sentenced to five and, and, and a half an years. Convicted criminal, a measure 11 convicted criminal. Yeah, so so Measure 11, the, the measure passed not once but twice by the voters saying we want tough penalties for people who engage in violent crimes, which armed second-degree armed robbery with a firearm, which is what he was convicted of at age 17, and getting a five-and-a-half-year sentence, that tells you everything you need to know. But if the Oregonian, the woke Oregonian, had said, well, hey, uh, uh, the cops shot to death a convicted criminal who was running from them with a gun in his hand, it would have changed the character of the entire story, wouldn't it? It would. And what's even more amazing to me is um, there in the article, which reads like an op-ed, I don't even recognize the, the byline of the quote reporter. It doesn't frankly look like news reporting. Like I said, there wasn't a separate, much better article by longtime you know, cop reporter Noel Crombie two days earlier. But this was the one that gets all the attention. It refers to um, apparently anger in the quote community, although I don't believe that, that they, the police even had the temerity to stop them on the theory that this is a new one on me, that police should only endeavor to stop people that they are sure have convicted, have committed felonies. Now, right. Just so people would understand. And, that would yeah, mean drunk driving is not a felony, is it? Well, neither is domestic violence, illegal possession of, uh, of, a, of a weapon, um, you know, cruelty to animals, uh, shoplifting. I can go on and on. I mean, it's pretty terrifying if we've arrived at the point where, A, it's okay for, for convicted felons to carry guns, B, for them to run from the police, um, and, C, and for the them to drive drunk. To attempt to stop them. Yeah, and C, to drive intoxicated. In fact, the Portland Tribune, and I, I know some people who work there, but they, they, the second line, he will be remembered for his efforts to reduce inmate recidivism. On June 25th, 250 people marched from the North Clackamas Aquatic Park to the Clackamas Sheriff's Office to protest the killing of a tigered resident. Derek Dwayne Clark, a family man, was killed by the Oregon, not a convicted criminal, a family man was killed by the OSP and a Clackamas deputy was remembered as a good person who was doing good work in the community except half a dozen years ago he was committing armed robbery and yet he's remembered as a a family man well it, why you know here's oh hold hold on one one detail Josh one detail if he was convicted of a measure 11 crime at the time when he was 17 He's underage. Back then, with a felony conviction, he would be absolutely barred from buying or possessing any kind of firearm, correct? Absolutely, yes. I mean, let, let's just assume for the moment. Let's, <laughs> well, yeah, let's for assume the moment that we don't, that he's completely, you know, uh, somehow recreated himself or, or whatever. Um, the fact of the matter, he's a convicted felon. He's not allowed to have firearms period, and most of us would agree that the one kind of person we don't want 
uh, because they've already shown how wildly irresponsible and dangerous there are, are convicted felons. But beyond that, the, the, the apparently stir in the community is how dare the police try to pull this guy over if all he was doing was drunk driving. And um, I, oh. I, I assume you've heard this. That I, uh, hold on, Josh. I've got to confess a dog in the fight. You remember how my mom died. Uh, over 50 years ago, killed by a drunk driver. Right, of so, course. I'm so sorry, I, I have a bias against drunk drivers. Uh, and so if well, you yeah, say... We all should. Well, uh, except yeah. apparently the media does not. Well, I think it's it's very selective. I mean, if you can imagine, if, you, if we changed the race and a few other things about this guy and, and, and tried to make, and somebody made a serious attempt to argue that, uh, you know, that that some 50-year-old you know, businessman who was pulled over by the police and responds by running and then pulling a gun on them, it literally wouldn't even be reported. Um, you know, and and for, to, to try to minimize, the fact is, he was, as I understand, he was convicted under Measure 11 as an adult. They have that. Now, that's been changed prospectively by the legislature in 2019. Which means, as as uh, short, know, short shorthand this, Josh, we're close to the break. If he had pulled the same crime today under the changes in Measure 11, he would not be tried as an adult, he would not be convicted as an adult, and he would be allowed to own a gun, wouldn't he? Yes, you're right. Absolutely. And, that, and, and think about that for a moment. You pull off an armed robbery today, you get convicted under Measure 11, uh, the, the cut-down Measure 11, thanks to Kate Brown and company at the state legislature, You'd still be able to buy a gun and run around with a gun, even though you committed a felony as a kid. Josh, thanks for the call. I love getting your emails, even the naysayer emails, talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you decide you want to set me straight, why naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Our Twitter poll today, and I do it because it's relevant to this interview. The Parkland High School killer is spared the death penalty. Three of the jury members just couldn't bring themselves to do it. Is that justice? And I would say no to that. Now, that may color, I doubt it'll color the opinion of Andy Pollack, who is a school safety activist whose 18-year-old daughter, Meadow Pollack, was murdered at the uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School uh, almost four years ago. He is the author of the book called Why Meadow Died. And Andy, I have to say welcome to the show, but I want to tell my audience something if you don't mention it, and that is that you have spent the last intervening years not focused on the killer, but focused on, uh, I guess, honoring and preserving uh, the memory of your daughter, which I think is is the right way to go through your life, and you're to be commended for it. Well, thanks, thanks, Laws. It's been uh, it's been a journey since my daughter was murdered. Uh, that word accountability has haunted me, and holding the people accountable. But the shooters, his it was out of my hands to hold him accountable. But getting that sheriff removed in Broward. Uh, getting a lot of people don't know the the deputy that didn't go in. Uh, he was he's held on felony child endangerment charges. His trial will be in May. Uh, the superintendent has been arrested on felony perjury charges as as long as the lawyer for the district. And four school board members have been removed in Broward County. That that's been my focus over the last uh, four years. Because you can't bring your daughter back, uh, but that we could. But uh, 
But what you can do is make other positive changes that will matter for for kids and the community as long as the rest of the country pays attention to it. But I do have to ask you, on a on a day like today where a jury found itself incapable of sentencing a man who had admitted to the crimes he committed, admitted to the murders that he committed, he pleaded guilty to that, they couldn't bring themselves to give him the death penalty. I want to know your, your thoughts on that. Well, I have mixed emotions, Laws. Uh, I'm friends with all the other families and it's, it's tough to talk about it because my heart is broken for them they were at that trial every day and their focus and probably closure for them was this animal getting the death penalty uh i don't know if you know this but the average death penalty uh person sitting on death row will wait 20 years on average before yep. they're killed peacefully true so for me i don't know the system if 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 it was a system where, okay, they they had him, they found him guilty, they sentenced him to death, and within a month they killed him, I would be okay with it. But to put someone in, uh, in it's like, because I spoke to a lot of correction officers and wardens in Florida. I educated myself into the process. They they told me if, they, if the person on death row has their own security detail, they don't have to work. They get their own TV. They get their meals brought to them. They brought. They get their medication brought to them, and it's like they have their own room service in in the jail system. And they told me, in general population, just like the route Jeffrey Dahmer went, general population, that he'd be tortured, uh, and probably his life would be ended a lot quicker than if he was on death row and sentenced to death. Agreed. Well, let me ask you about another so issue, though. For me, you know? It's yeah, I, I get it. I get it. But I looked at those parents, uh, you know, the video that you see of the parents, and they're clearly suffering. And then I saw this note from a, one of my favorite writers out there, Pamela Fitzsimmons, who said there's a reason the parents of the victims cried to this decision. It's not over for them. They will spend the rest of their lives thinking about this killer. What's he doing right now? How many prison pen pals does he have? What are his favorite TV shows? Whatever he's doing, it'll be a whole lot more fun than nothing. And that's what Cruz victims have. No life for them. But he gets a life. And I, I, I thought her argument was a good one that they have to worry. And, and to some extent, Andy, I'd ask you about this. They have to worry because I've been told for 30 or 40 years, well, we lock somebody up for life. The problem is, Andy, over those 30 or 40 years, I've seen so many life sentences turned into not life. It turned into you get out now. In fact, it's it's been happening a lot where a, a, a court or the legislature or the governor or a bunch of activists uh, seek to free killers. And they do in some cases. And sometimes the killers escape from prison. So you've got all those possibilities that weigh on the minds of those parents. Yeah, and, you know, but once this happens to a parent where your child is murdered or, or they're killed, uh, you're never the same anyway. You know, like I'm, nothing really affects me. Uh, emo, you know, I get emotional feeling for those parents. Not for me, because I really, my heart's been broken since February 14th, and it's tough for, for, for me to feel anything. But I just know in my heart that this guy, when he goes to prison, He's going to be tortured. And, you know, like I said, in a perfect world, hang him in a month. Uh, it's scary, you know. 
Think about this system. What does an individual have to do to get the death penalty? Isn't this just a waste of time? Like, how much money did they waste? You know, here he is on video killing my daughter, shooting her nine times, 16 other people murdered, and he doesn't get the death penalty. So where, what does someone have to do, Lars, to get the death penalty? Well, and that's, Andy, that's what I was, I'm talking to Andy Pollock, who's the father of Meadow Pollock, who died um, four years ago at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High. That's why I framed a very simple question. We do a poll question every day, and I said, the Parkland High School killer is spared the death penalty. Is that justice? And I think the answer is no, because I ask myself, if this guy's sitting in front of you, there's not even a question about his guilt. He has pleaded guilty to the 17 counts of first-degree murder. All you've got to decide is what he did was so bad, and there were no mitigating circumstances, that he deserves to have his own life taken. And nine of the jurors could say yes to that, and three of them, as we understand now, said no. No, and so if that doesn't, if that doesn't merit the death penalty, what does? That's what that's what I say to myself. What message does it send to these other sick people out there that are contemplating uh, committing a mass uh, a massacre of such a heinous crime like this? What message does it send to them, uh, you know, to do a crime? Because I don't think there could be much worse than what happened to my daughter in that school. And he didn't get the death penalty. And he sat in, you know, the Constitution's for a speedy trial four years. We've been sitting, the parents, and they have it on video. You know, everything's on video. So it's kind of hard to believe, but it's the system that's broken. That's why I don't believe in, you know, sitting, letting him sit in a cell for 20 years. I know that he's going to be tortured. They're not going to take too kind to someone that killed a 14-year-old in a prison. And in fact, I, I kind of anticipate, I do anticipate that he'll probably appeal, even though he pleaded guilty. People will say, well, if you plead guilty, you can't appeal. Oh, yes, you can. And and even the jury didn't want the life sentence imposed today. They said, we want to hear from the victims first. Well, holy cow. See, you want to tell the victim families to come in and say what they think, having spared this guy the death penalty and offered him life in prison without parole, which may not be life in prison without parole. And now you want to know what the victims have to say, the victim families have to say to the court? Well, they all they already had given impact statements that were yeah. brutal. Like I couldn't I couldn't even watch my friends. Uh, my ex-wife gave a statement and it, I didn't put myself through it. You know, I didn't want to give him the benefit of doubt of seeing how much pain he put everybody through. And and now they're going to go, they postponed it, I think, till Tuesday to get more statements where it's not going to change anything. So I, I don't see the point of it, of these people putting themselves through this. I don't either. It's almost as though the jury didn't want the sentence imposed today. That's Andy Pollack. He wrote Why Meadow Died about his 18-year-old daughter, Meadow Pollock, who was murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School four years ago. Uh, in Parkland, Florida. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your phone calls. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you care to, vote in our Twitter poll. You can do that two places at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Now, 
you noticed or might have noticed that last week I didn't spend a lot of time on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, nor on the ascension to the throne of her uh, son, who now becomes uh, King Charles, uh, just because, well, you know, I'm not that enthusiastic about monarchs, but I didn't have a whole lot of things to say that were bad either. Uh, on the other hand, if you go over to the academic side of things, there are an awful lot of people who are very quick to attack a nearly 100-year-old woman who has now passed away. And I thought I'd talk to Maggie Kelly about that. She's assistant editor of the College Fix. Maggie, welcome to the program. Hi, Lars. Thanks for having me. What do you think? I'm glad to do it, but what what do you think is going on there, and why is it that there were professors and academics and others, uh, not just students and and people making offhand comments, who were denouncing her after she was dead? I don't know how much they said about her before she died, but I'm curious about that uh, because, as I said, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of monarchy. Uh, our country fought a war to get out from under a monarchy, and I applaud sure. that. But, you know, that's that's the system the Brits have either allowed to continue. Uh, I don't know that they, they they haven't recently had a choice about how it runs, but I suppose if the monarchy sure. ever becomes unpopular enough, they can say, well, let's do it another way. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know what's in the heads of these, these academics and others who tweeted things like, the world loathes this woman, um, you know, when do... Britain gets a chance to mourn now. When do we get a chance to mourn? Good riddance, colonizer. Um, There's a a woman who tweeted, Uju Anya, professor at Carnegie Mellon, who tweeted very notably, um, uh, may she die in agony, this wretched woman and her bloodthirsty throne. So I think that, um, you know, what what we're seeing here is that these professors, they they have strongly held beliefs about about colonialism and about race and about... um, what they believe to be historical injustices, and they're sort of capitalizing on a day of national mourning when they know that so much attention is being drawn to Queen Elizabeth to to, to grind their their axes, so to speak. And they're they're on Twitter. They're doing this publicly. They're not. This, this is Twitter is the public square, as you know, and they know they're going to get seen and, and retweeted. And I think that this is. This is them using this moment to sort of opportunistically um, rail against what what they believe to be evil, evil in the world. Well, and it to me, it sounds an awful lot like the same complaints that that I, you know, that uh, Barack Hussein Obama, who was president of the United mm-hmm. States, had about the United States, that he believed that yep. the United States was a colonial power, that it was inherently yep. evil, that it was baked yep. in the cake, that the United States wasn't just evil under past rulers, but it continues to be evil. So even though, you know, as I said, not not the biggest fan of, of a monarchy system, but I wouldn't choose to live in a monarchy. I, I choose to live in a republic as long as the republic lasts. Right, we have the longest right. lasting one in history. So, you know, but, but yeah. on the other hand i get the feeling these are the same people who would attack the united states and its legacy uh, on the same basis sure. sure yeah and i think that there's there's a way there's a mode of attack that is all about bringing up the, the what were um believed to be to be negative things and to, to be downsides of something without um commenting on the the positive or the, the good that a power like Great Britain or a power like America's has done in the world. And I think that what, what you see from a lot of professors is that they, they feel it's their obligation to to turn their students against the things they, they cherish and love and the institutions they cherish and love. And, and whether that's America or the, you know, or, or for some people in Britain, maybe who are attached to uh, the idea of the monarchy, maybe that's that for them. But I, I think professors see their, their, 
their vocation, which is kind of perverse, is being to to tear those things down and, and make students kind of cynical about them. I mean, the other uh, practical objection I'd have, Maggie, is that is that when you look at the world and you say, okay, where are the bad places that Britain had colonies? Well, let's see, right. Hong Kong was a colony. I mean, it basically right. rented the space for 100 years. And when they finally gave it back to the Chai Coms, I would dare anybody to say, oh, no, this 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 center of commerce and and, uh, you know, trade and everything else uh, in Hong Kong is going to be better run by by the commies of Beijing than it was right, when it was right. a British colony. I think you tell me that with a straight face that you think 10 years from now uh, or 20 or 50 years from now, the Chai Coms already violated the terms of their handover of Hong Kong. And you say, mm-hmm. oh, it'll it'll look much better now that the communists are running it now that we got rid of those evil colonizers right yeah i mean the academics love to to hate on the history of colonialism but it's complicated right and there's there's and to do the in, in such a way where it's it's really just some of these tweets were just vitriolic insults and sneers and they, they weren't an attempt to really educate about history or talk about history in a, in a serious or scholarly way which i you know i would have i would have been more respectful of that and, and been more, um, you know, that, that's, that's not something that I would find as much fault with. But I, I think what we saw here was um, really, it's kind of the worst of Twitter in some ways, just really angry and like really angry and uh, worked up people saying angry and um and inflated things that they knew were going to just draw negative attention. Okay, Maggie, I've got a break, but thank you so much. We'll look forward to seeing more of The College Fix. Maggie Kelly, assistant editor of The College Fix, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Your call's next. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. So for most of the last almost two years now, the Biden administration has taken a position that the border crisis does not exist. I mean, uh, uh, Secretary Mayorkas from Homeland Security says the border is secure. And Kamala Harris echoes those words. And she, after all, was named about a year and a half ago by Joe Biden as the border czar. She's in charge of the problem. And then she studiously has stayed away from actually going to the America-Mexico border. And now we find out that it looks like the White House was pressuring a Democrat mayor, Democrat Party mayor from El Paso, Texas, saying, yeah, we know you're being overrun by illegal aliens. But listen, don't call it an emergency because we don't need the trouble as we head up to an election. Now, Tommy Pickett is the rapid response director for the Republican National Committee. Tommy, did I get any part of that wrong? Uh, That's all right. Unfortunately, Uh, they've been lying about the border crisis for about 18 months, and now we know that they care more about optics than the realities. I mean, we, we kind of had that feeling for 18 months, but now we have definitive proof that they're more concerned about the optics and pressuring the El Paso mayor to really downplay the border crisis and the reality of the fact that we have 4.4 million illegal crossings since Joe Biden took office. Uh, and then just quickly on the electoral front, I think that really yeah. means that we need governors to stand up to Joe Biden, which is why it's so important that Kerry Lake and Greg Abbott uh, are the governors of Texas and Arizona. No, and and I'm glad to see that Abbott is the governor. Carrie Lake is likely to become the governor of Arizona. But the the bizarre part of this is we know that when a lot of these illegals leave the border, 
You know, they're not just meandering away. They're certainly not staying in places like McAllen, Texas. Uh, they're leaving because the Biden administration has been flying them and busing them everywhere else in America. And a lot of them land in the big blue cities that are sanctuary cities. And when that was happening, you know, for the first year or so, the Democrat mayors of those cities didn't say that it was a problem at all. But all of a sudden, when Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, says, I'm going to put a bunch of these folks on a bus and send them to Chicago and to Washington, D.C. and to New York, all of a sudden it becomes a major emergency. And the White House hasn't pushed back on the big cities like D.C. and New York and, and Chicago declaring an emergency. But explain to my audience how we know that they were pushing back on the Democrat mayor of El Paso saying, don't call this an emergency. Well, we know because of the New York Post reporting that, that found that the Biden administration was really pressuring El Paso to not declare this an emergency. Uh, and they actually were pressuring the mayor of D.C. to not declare it an emergency as well. So they were, they've actually been leaning on Democrat mayors across the board to not declare this an emergency. And we know that from reporting of Biden administration comments, uh, Biden administration pressuring these mayors. Uh, but the the fact is, is, again, this is more concerned about optics. Even within this reporting, what's revealed is that the Biden administration's concern is, again, not the reality, not the facts on the ground. It's the optics. And that's the Biden administration themselves saying they are most concerned about the optics. Uh, that's how disconnected this administration is. They care more about whether or not people know that 900,000 illegal immigrants have escaped into this country since Biden took office. They care more about people know about that than the fact that that's happening. Uh, and that's why we really need Republican majorities to hold them accountable. Yeah. And if we get a Republican majority, Tommy, then what happens? I mean, at best, they put a finger in the hole in the dike, don't they? Because because they can't actually make any changes to immigration law, even if Republicans. And I think I think they're going to uh, gain a fairly sizable majority in the House and at least a like three, four vote majority in the Senate based on the way things are going. But even then, all they'll be able to do is sort of stop some of the Biden actions not not actually change the laws or change the way the president and his cabinet are handling this? Well, it's undeniable that the presidency is extremely important in terms of enforcing the law. That's actually the function of the executive branch. So the, what Congress can do is not entirely what we could do if we had the presidency, for example. But what is extremely important is the accountability and the light that Congress can shine on these administration officials. There was a recent political report that said Biden's CBP head, who is in charge of securing the border, is falling asleep in meetings, seems completely disinterested in actually securing the border. Mayorkas has lied uh, time and time again about the reality of the border crisis. What a, a Republican majority can do is bring these people before committees, hold these people accountable, start putting real pressure and shining a real light on the realities of this border crisis. So, so we're not relying on uh, the mayor of El Paso to declare an emergency. We can actually call out in real time the Biden administration for trying to pressure and downplay this crisis. And I think that's extremely important when the mainstream media has really abdicated a lot of its responsibility to report on this. Having those congressional majorities can really shine a light, really put pressure, and I think it's really important. You know, it's funny that uh, I've been watching what Biden's been doing the last few weeks. In the last few weeks, we've seen them say, well, we're going to put uh, we're going to pa- we're going to codify into federal law gay marriage because they're afraid the Supreme Court will overrule uh, Obergefell. And they've already seen Roe v. Wade overturned, which I think was appropriate. Abortion is not in the Constitution. And you see Joe Biden announced that whereas I guess inflation was his primary domestic uh, policy objective within the last week or 10 days, today it just became abortion. 
and uh, for some strange reason, and he says we're going to get we're going to get Roe codified into federal law, which I don't even think is is likely, even if they kept their majority in the House. Because I've asked people, Tommy, if they were if the Democrats were to write the kind of abortion law that they would absolutely demand, it would not be something with limits or curbs on it. They would say, listen, we want abortion on demand for anyone under any circumstances all the way to the moment of birth. Would you agree? That's the bill that they would actually put before the House if they had the guts to put the bill before the House. Well, they've actually already voted to that effect. The Women's Health Care Protection Act, as it's really inappropriately named, that Democrats have voted for, basically codifies abortions up until the due date, up until the moment of birth with effectively no limits. Uh, it, it, it's really an outrageous piece of legislation that would put the United States more in line with North Korea and China than with countries in Western Europe, for example. And some really heinous ways that this law would also do is it would uh, codify and legalize really barbaric procedures of late-term abortion. It would allow abortion for simply the sex or race of the baby. It would really allow a lot of horrific, uh, terrible practices. And the Democrats that are voting for this have already voted for this in the House, in the Senate, that want to keep on pushing for this, I think are way out of step with the 78% of Americans that want common sense limits on abortion, uh, that want really common sense and compassionate laws for the mother, for the baby, for everyone involved. Well, and in fact, I would think this would end up being an election issue in not the the true blue places like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's district, but I'm talking about the swing districts where they could go either way. If you say, yeah, I'm for abortion under any circumstances all the way to the moment of birth, even if all you're trying to do is pick the color or the gender, uh, the race of the baby, yeah, that's all okay. I would almost think that, that even an awful lot of people who are not you know, strong Democrats would say, no, no, that's crazy. We're not, we're not, we're not going to put you in Congress. And yet, Joe seems to say this is the new issue. Tommy, thank you very much. That's Tommy Pickett, the Rapid Response Director for the Republican National Committee. By the way, we'd make the same invitation to the Democrat counterpoint counterpart to uh, Tommy Pickett. Kind of doubt they'll come on. Glad to have you with me. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, you can certainly join us at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want to suggest to you that the liberals who run many of the Northwest governments have figured out a way to engineer a tax increase that you may actually not even see. In fact, you probably never see it because you'll only see it when you're dead, and yet the rate has effectively been going up. Jeff Mornerich joins me now, who's a tax attorney at Dole Colwell Attorneys in Roseburg. And no, I don't have a dog in the fight here, though, although one of these days I, I, I probably am going to come to the end of my life. Jeff, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing well. Now, you point out that there is an exemption. I don't think there should be an estate tax at all, is my personal opinion, because I think you've paid taxes on all the money you've earned during your life. And if you happen to have invested it in a business or a house or other assets, those should go to your, uh, your survivors, your successors, uh, without any tax consequence at all. But having said that, they put one in, and as you point out, uh, they make the argument, yeah, this is only going to apply to the ultra-wealthy. Is that still true today because no change has been made to the amount of money or amount of value that's exempt in in estate taxes? It's unbelievable right now, Lars. The the number for Oregon, there's an estate tax exemption of $1 million. And in this day and age, with soaring home prices, 
consumer price index going up. I'm dealing with so many families that have a million dollars. If you have a if you have a house and retirement account, you're over that amount. And like you said a minute ago, you said that you know whether you agree or disagree with the idea of an estate tax, it should be designed to tax the ultra wealthy or those folks that certainly have more than a million dollars. And in Oregon, they set that number in 2006, and it has stayed there. It has not been adjusted. It is 16 years on the books at a $1 million exemption. And I'm dealing with so many clients now that, I mean, they've already gone through a death in the family, and then to turn around have to hire accountants, appraisers, lawyers, and then pay an estate tax, it definitely needs to be changed. All right, so uh, in practical terms, uh, I, I know that estate, taxes are more complicated than just this, but if you die with an estate north of a million dollars, what's the effect, what's the tax rate that you're going to end up having to pay to the state, roughly? Well, it's a little bit of a varying scale, and I want to be clear here. You said I'm a, a tax attorney. I'm really just an estate planning attorney. I always joke with people that I know just enough about taxes to get myself in trouble, but my belief is it's a 10% to 16% sliding scale in the state of Oregon. So they're going to be looking at an absolute minimum of 10%, and it could go up to 16%. So in in a simple situation, someone dies, has a $2 million estate. So they have a retirement account. Maybe they have a small business. They have some personal belongings that may be worth some money, and they have a house. And the house is, say, worth uh, just just below or just over a million dollars. If their total estate is $2 million, they, their survivors may have to pay, and I know technically it's the estate that pays, but they may have to come up with $160,000 to to be able to uh, have that go through? A minimum of $100,000. Literally have to get out the checkbook and write a check to the Oregon Department of Revenue for $100,000. That would be the minimum on a $2 million estate. All right. Now, the reason I ask that is, you know, some kids, uh, the kids uh, who may be in their 40s or 50s by then, mom and dad pass away. Uh, they inherit the farm. They inherit a house. They inherit a bunch of equipment on a farm. The equipment alone could be worth a million bucks. If you talk about, you know, big, the kind of equipment that's used on farms, they have to come up with 160 grand. What happens, since most people don't have an extra 160 grand sitting around in their checking account, what happens when they can't come up with any cash? What do they usually end up doing? They're going to have to go sell business assets or finance um, to get a loan to cover the taxes, one or the other. And, uh, you know, there's something else, too, I want to add to this. Sure. Oregon's an outlier here, Lars. I believe it's 33 out of our 50 states have no estate tax or inheritance tax, none. Um, to our borders, Idaho, they do not have an estate tax or an inheritance tax. Nevada, no estate or inheritance tax. Even California doesn't have a tax. So we have one, and yet the number is a million dollars as the exemption. At the federal level right now, Lars, it, in fact, just this year for 2022, you don't even look to a federal estate tax until you're over $12 million. Oregon's just unbelievably behind the times on this one. But now, I can't pr- believe it hasn't been addressed. And Jeff, I just want people to think about this, that you're getting all these clients in, because if you ask most people, if the, if the son or daughter or, or the kids of, of someone who passes want to hang on to the farm or want to hang on to that little store that mom and dad spent decades getting to the point where it was doing business, but it's worth a few million bucks, they may be literally unable to do that at all. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it could destroy the family business. Should Now, has it ever been proposed that the estate tax in Oregon, if you're going to have one, I would rather go to the status those other 33 states have, no estate tax at all. Pay the other taxes you owe, but no, no death tax is what it amounts to. Um, has it ever been proposed that they index it to inflation so that is the value or the the dollar figure, not necessarily the value, the same house that wouldn't have been a million dollars 16 years ago is a million dollars today or the same business. Have they ever talked about indexing it to inflation? You know, Lars, I don't know whether or not they've talked about it, but the law that they passed in 2006, 16 years ago, absolutely did not tie it to any sort of a price index or inflation. So it just sits there. And uh, it's, it's at that number. And I mean, look at house prices now. And I deal with a lot of clients. I mean, you know, common families that have a house and a retirement account, they've worked hard. They've done everything they can just to save and, and get by. And it's not that big a deal this day and age to be over a million dollars. When they die, their kids are going to be paying the state of Oregon an estate tax if they're over a million dollars. And if they can't do it, then they have to sell the asset. And you might say, well, they're still lucky kids. If they sell mom and dad's $2 million in assets, the state comes in and takes its minimum $100,000 out of their pocket and leaves them the rest. But what if they really want to hang on to that house or the farm or the business and they just can't do it because they can't make the numbers work out? Are you seeing clients like that right now? Occasionally, yes. And all of them, a lot of them are definitely shocked when they realize how much they have to pay to the state of Oregon. And I still think you have to look at the whole nation. Again, 33 states don't even have a death tax. And Oregon, even though it does, is just unbelievably low. There's a number of states that tie their estate tax exemption to the federal estate tax exemption, which, again, right now is $12 million, not one. Um, as far as I know, other than maybe Massachusetts, we are absolutely the lowest in the nation for an estate tax exemption definitely needs to be addressed. In 16 years, how can it not go up with the the consumer price index, housing prices and all that? Why hasn't the number come up at all? It's stayed at a million dollars. Jeff, one of the reasons I invited you on to, to just get this in people's heads, it's an election year. So they, all these people out there listening can say, well, what can I do about it? The next time somebody knocks on your door, calls on the phone and says, elect me to the state legislature, you can say, okay, where are you on the estate tax? And if they say, oh, I don't even know the issue, then then frame the issue and ask them, are you willing to change that and tie it to the federal exemption of $12 million? That's Jeff Mornerich, who is a ta- not a tax attorney, an estate planning attorney in Roseburg. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network and the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Can you believe this? No, the Biden administration has not yet nationalized our oil companies, although who knows, maybe that that's the next move. Or are they just trying to tread water? And now his latest threat seems to be this. The same industry that Joe Biden vowed to destroy, that he said all he said over and over again during the campaign, he would get rid of the oil industry, that we wouldn't need it anymore, that we'd move on. And, uh, and he wanted them to be out of business. And he and his friends have been proposing that we go to all electric cars, I don't know where the electricity is going to come from, but right now about two-thirds of it comes from fossil fuels, and that may be a little bit of a problem. But Joe says he wants the oil companies to increase their production in an industry he threatened to destroy, and if they don't increase their production, he wants to tax the bejesus out of them. Okay, 
I, I guess I think I've got most of that. Ben Lieberman joins me now, who's a senior fellow specializing in environmental policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Ben, welcome to the program, and feel free to correct me on any of that that I got seriously wrong. Well, thanks for having me, and I wish I could make more sense of uh, the Biden policy than you have, but I can't either. Well, I mean, what what is he doing? Does he even have the legal authority to say, I guess he does. He can go to the Congress and say, raise the taxes on these folks. But I would figure that any oil company says, oh, you want us to pay more taxes? Okay, we'll just bake that into the price of the oil and the gasoline and diesel that we sell, and the American public will pay the price. Yeah, it's the opposite of a solution. If you raise the tax on something, that, that, that product will go up in price. And it doesn't matter where in the chain you do so, whether it's upstream or whether it's uh, downstream in the 17.4 cents that we pay uh, per gallon at the pump. You raise the taxes, you raise the price of, uh, of gasoline. So it's not a solution. It's also something that has a poor track record. This was tried back in the days of Jimmy Carter, and it didn't work very well. All it did was discourage domestic oil production. Well, and in fact, is it the oil company's fault that their production levels are lower now, not high enough to provide abundant oil and gas? And I assume if we had abundant oil and gas and diesel for uh, transportation and construction and also fuel oil for heating in the northeastern United States primarily, that prices would come down. But that's not where we are. And it's, it's not the oil company's fault, or is it? Well, uh, the, the Biden administration might have a point if it was the oil companies who refused to uh, engage in new leasing on federal lands. And if, the, if it was the oil companies who refused to build necessary pipelines like the Keystone XL pipeline. But, of course, it's not the oil companies. It's the Biden administration. As you mentioned, this administration called for the extinction pretty much of the American oil industry. And they started work on just that goal starting literally on Inauguration Day when they started rejecting uh, leasing, started uh, rejecting the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, uh, drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So, yeah, there, 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 there is a problem with American oil production less than it could be, but that's entirely the fault of the administration. This is not oil companies holding back supplies. All right. So give me I'm talking to Ben Lieberman, who's a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, specialized in environmental policy. And I guess this is about the environment or so Joe would have you believe. But uh, I looked up some numbers. And two years ago, when the economy fell off a cliff in 2020, mostly because of government decision making to shut the economy down, companies like Exxon, if I'm right about the numbers, Exxon lost twenty two billion dollars in 2020. If I lost I don't have $22 billion to lose, but if, I, if I'd if i lost $22 billion, I'd be trying to make it up as fast as I could uh, if today's marketplace is an attractive one, and it sounds like it is. This is a very, very cyclical industry. They have fantastic quarters. They have terrible quarters. Overall, it's not as profitable an, in, an industry as, as, as many others. It doesn't stand out. In, in, in any regard, but there's this tendency for some to play up uh, very big quarterly profits when they do happen as, as evidence of, uh, of price gouging or market manipulation. But keep in mind, if the big oil companies could jack up prices whenever they wanted to, why did we go through very, very long stretches as we did uh, until the Biden administration, long stretches of fairly modest prices and uh, very, very modest profits? So it doesn't really make much sense. 
No, because, Ben, I hear people say that, all, you know, they're all conspiring to raise prices. I said, why didn't they do that about six years ago when oil dropped down to, I think, the mid-$20 range per barrel? If they were capable of, I mean, it's not legal, wouldn't be legal for them to do it, but if they were capable of saying, let's get us get all the oil company executives in one room and let's all agree to artificially raise prices, they'd have probably done it when oil was 25 bucks a barrel, wouldn't they? No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. The track record shows that these companies go through long periods of, uh, of low oil prices and relatively modest prices. It's a very cyclical industry. I don't. Whoop, did we lose you, Ben? I think we lost Ben there for just a moment. Ben, are you still there? Might have lost his phone. Let me uh, try this. Hey, Ben, are you still there? <laughs> Maybe he was on a subway and he went through a tunnel. I don't know. Ben, are you there? I'll tell you what, Dusty, see if you can get Ben back for me, because I wanted to hear the rest of what he had to say. But Joe Biden is threatening the oil companies. Why? He wants to get rid of the oil companies, and he's told Americans that's his plan. And then he turns around and says, I'm going to threaten you. Drop, drop the amount of price you're charging. So even though you lost huge amounts of money, as I said, Exxon lost $22 billion in 2020, just two years ago. And now that oil is scarce, uh, and that's why the price is up, and they're making money, Joe Biden wants to only have you pay attention to the times when they're making money, not when they've been losing money. And in, in the middle of all that, Joe Biden says, I want to force the oil companies to reinvest a lot of their money into building new refineries that Joe Biden himself has said he wants them to stop making oil and to get away from oil as fast as the next 10 or 20 years. Well, if you can imagine, for an oil company, if they buy a new refinery, if they expand the capacity of a refinery they've already got, that's a multi-billion dollar investment, and it probably pays back in 10 or 20 or 30 years. So why would an oil company spend a giant amount of money to build new capacity that they've already been told the Biden administration has plans that they'll never be able to use it out to its useful lifetime. Lifetime. Good to have you back, Ben. Yeah, um, you know, let's not forget, this is a president who called for the total extinction of the American oil industry. And regardless of what happens next Tuesday, he's going to be president for two more years at least. So uh, that sends exactly the wrong signal when it comes to investing in uh, new production. Uh, and we're seeing the, the impacts of that. So, I mean, and at that point, Joe Biden may well have a House and Senate where there's a Republican majority in each each chamber. And I guess he plans to, what, sit in the White House and complain about the cost of oil and how the Republicans could fix it if they were just willing to tax the oil companies enough? I think so. Uh, no, no tax increases are going to pass. Now, a number of bills, I would expect, if we do have a Republican House and a Republican Senate, there will be a number of pro-production bills that will uh, demand more leasing, uh, uh, free up uh, uh, pipeline capacity, et cetera. Those will likely get vetoed, but uh, but uh, that's, well, that's probably what we'll see. With but Ben, won't that be fun to watch? I mean, in some ways, it's not fun to pay 5 and $6 a gallon, which I've been paying as well. I fill up my own tank. Uh, but can you imagine Joe Biden sitting in the White House having demanded that they increase production and the Republicans pass a bill, say, fine, Mr. President, here's a bill that will fast-track increased refinery capacity and increased drilling and then watch joe biden veto the very thing that he's asking for a week out from the election actually i think that might be the thing i want to see happen ben uh, thank you so much for your time and for what you do at the competitive enterprise institute so thank you
It's always my pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll, at Lars Larson Show. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to take your phone calls, and I'll do that in just a moment. But I want to talk to our friend Carl Zabo, who's vice president of Net Choice and a professor of internet law at George Mason University's Scalia Law School. Carl, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. So the U.S. Supreme Court announced on Monday, beginning of its term, that it was going to hear some uh, nine different cases, uh, including one called Ronaldo Gonzalez versus Google. So one ordinary citizen who lost his daughter tragically in the Paris terrorists attack uh, back in, 19, in 2015 he says that Google played a role in that. And the whole question, if I understand this right, help me understand this, is whether or not the Supreme Court of the United States will say that uh, Gonzalez has a right to even bring a lawsuit against Google. Is that it? Yeah. So I think we can all agree that we want websites to remove terrorist content like ISIS content. And I think we can all agree that we want to hold terrorists personally responsible for their atrocities. Yep. A lot of conservative principles, like the ones I believe in, believe in personal responsibility. What this case is essentially saying is because Google, in its search algorithm, as they try to block as much terrorist content as they can, failed to block some ISIS content, well, that means Google is responsible for the ISIS attacks that took place in France and killed this young girl. Now, what happened is horrible. Uh, I, I think we can also all agree that Google is certainly not in the ISIS promotion business. And so what we're talking about right here is a court that needs to or wants to twist itself into knots and say, you know what, Google, I know you try to get all the terrorist content, but because you weren't perfect, we're going to hold you responsible. That seems to be the outcome the court would have to reach to rule in favor of the plaintiff in this case. And as just somebody who's on the Internet nonstop, I'd much rather that Google and whomever else get 98, 99 percent of the terrorist content rather than not even try, which is essentially what the choices are before the court here. They can either say, if you try, you try your hardest and you fail to get it all, that's okay, as long as you tried, rather than saying, you know what, if you don't try at all, we're not going to hold you responsible for anything. I guess, Carl, if I catch 99 out of 100 F-bombs, and people do occasionally throw them on this show, but I miss the 100th one, do you know what the FCC says? They say you still get to pay a $300,000 fine. And I say, but I got 99 of them. You say, well, you're a publisher. You decide what goes on the air. When Google acts like a publisher, not like a platform, they're, they're not. I always imagine the platform as being like putting up a blackboard in the town square in a little town and saying anybody can write anything they want to write up on the blackboard. And there will be no, you know, and, and we may take down death threats. But other than that, everybody, everything goes up there. Google seems perfectly capable, and they do, censoring out conservative points of view and things they don't like apparently because of the politics of the people who run google and the other tech companies and then all of a sudden they miss when not only in gonzalez's case if i understand it went beyond just allowing some 
ISIS uh, recruiting videos to go on there, but algorithms that actually pointed people. They, they said, well, based on the other sites you've gone to, you might be interested in seeing this ISIS recruiting video. They were actually pointing information to some of the users of Google. Is that not the case? So when we look at what's going on, it's not as though somebody at Google is thinking, ooh, ISIS, we should support and promote their content. The way the algorithms are structured is that if you happen to like something, if I like dog videos, I'm more likely to see dog videos. Right. If I am interested in coffee, I'm more likely to see posts about coffee. In this case, it was people who are interested in terrorist content. Therefore, they are more likely to see some terrorist content. Is that great? Absolutely not. But it's not as though somebody at Google was actively trying to make sure that we're promoting terrorist content. Taking a step back to the publisher question, what we're looking at here is the way the law is structured. If a website does absolutely nothing to moderate content, if we talk about websites like 4chan or 8chan, which are absolute cesspool corners of the, the internet, dark where web. anything yep. goes all the time, yeah, they assume no liability for any and all of the content that is posted. But as soon as they try to remove ISIS content, terrorist content, uh, uh, child abuse, child grooming, stuff like that, then they assume liability for 100% of the content. So what we have done is our tort system, our legal system, is actually creating a disincentive to do the right thing. So every state in this country has what is called the Good Samaritan Law. If I see somebody struggling to breathe on the side of the road, and in the process of giving them CPR, I happen to break their ribs, they can't sue me for breaking their ribs because we want to encourage people to do the right thing. Right. What we have for the Internet is a similar law. It's called the Good Samaritan Law. And in it, if you are a website and you try to remove lawful but awful content like terrorist speech, we're not going to hold you liable for all the speech that you happen to miss, because we want to encourage people to do the right thing. So at the end of the day, as a conservative, am I frustrated by some of the content moderation and, and removal of conservative content by some of the, the tech companies? Absolutely. But I would much rather have them do that than have the government do that. Carl Zabo is vice president of NetChoice and a professor of internet law at George Mason University's Scalia Law School. Carl, it's always a pleasure. Glad to have you on. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls, and it's First Amendment Friday, so we need to get to calls in a moment. First, I want to go to our uh, law professor go-to guy, and that is uh, Northwestern School of Law, Professor Tung Yin. How you doing, Prof? You haven't been on in a while. Yeah, good. Thanks for having me back on. Well, I wanted to ask you about a couple of cases, but let's start with the big one, and that was the dismissal of all charges against Joey Gibson of Patriot Prayer this week, because it turns out that the prosecutor's office, the Multnomah County DA, Mike Schmidt Show, had brought charges against a man, and he didn't have the evidence to back it up. And that was actually presented to a federal judge some time ago. And the state, the state of Oregon, came in defending the Multnomah County DA and said, hey, uh, at trial, we'll present all that stuff, Your Honor. Don't worry about it. And then they showed up at trial without any of that stuff. And they finally had to dismiss the charges against Joey Gibson. What should the public make of that kind of behavior by a prosecutor? Well, um, one thing to be clear on, it wasn't actually the prosecutor who dismissed. It was the judge who granted a motion for acquittal. Uh, which is 
pretty routine for defense lawyers to ask after the prosecution is rested, but it's really incredibly rare to get it granted at that stage because it does uh, operate as double jeopardy bar. So most judges will deny that motion without prejudice and say, you know what, why don't you go forward with your case and most likely let it go to the jury. And then if they think that the defendant should be acquitted and the jury convicts, they'll set aside the verdict. But that way it can be appealed and the appeals court can um, reinstate the jury verdict of conviction if it feels necessary. For the judge to throw it out before even making the defense put on a case is, I wouldn't say unheard of, but it's really, really rare. I mean, it's a home run for the defense. No, and and all Uh, I was saying was that prior to coming to trial, uh, Joey Gibson's attorney, who we talked to uh, earlier this week, or sorry, last week, uh, Angus Lee, he said, we took this to a federal judge and said, Your Honor, uh, throw these things, these charges out because the state doesn't have any evidence. And the state then represented to a federal judge, not the judge who threw it out this week, uh, Your Honor, we will have the evidence at trial. But then when they showed up at trial, they didn't have the evidence they claimed they would have. Uh, they didn't have any of it. They didn't have the eyewitness testimony or anything else. And that's why the state judge then said, okay, I'm throwing this out. You guys don't have anything to hang this case on. And and I'm wondering, should there should there be some kind of consequence when the state, either, you know, the state, uh, the, the DA is a state official. He's not a... He's not a county official, even though we call him the county DA. He's actually an official of the state of Oregon. When a state official and then the the AG's office stand up in front of a federal judge and claim they've got evidence to use to to keep charges going against somebody for a total of uh, almost four years, I mean, well, from 2019 to present, uh, and, and then it turns out they lied, should there be a consequence for that? Um. Well, I guess it's not entirely clear they lied as opposed to they just were completely wrong of their assessment of the uh, the case. But, I mean, if we want to be a little more charitable. But I think the answer is what I often um, answer your questions, which is, you know, there's a, a remedy here, which is the political process. When Mike Schmidt is up for re-election, the voters of uh, Multnomah County can keep this in mind and decide whether they want to retain him or boot him out of office. Um, well, Okay, but Professor, when you're teaching law classes, any of the lawyers that you're training, do you have the, if if you, would you ever tell them you can ever misrepresent something to a judge, knowingly misrepresent something and get away with it? No, of course not. Um, So I think that the tricky question that you're getting to here is um, when the state uh, attorneys said to the federal judge, we will be able to prove this case. Are we able to ascertain for a fact that they knew that they could not prove the case and that they were going through with the case just simply to harass uh, Mr. Gibson? Or did they honestly, but incorrectly, but sincerely believe that they actually had enough to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Um, And, you know, I think it's questionable, but um, certainly possible that they really did honestly believe they could prove the case. Except that based on what Angus Lee told me, he said they looked at all the different angles of video that were shot, all the witnesses who'd already talked about it because he's had the case for several years. And when they went to the federal judge, they said, Your Honor, nothing that's been presented here shows that my client did anything like what's described in the law against riot. And the other side said, oh, Your Honor, we will have eyewitnesses who will testify 
that what Joey Gibson's accused of doing, he actually did. And then they showed up without those eyewitnesses and without any additional video and without any additional evidence. If they didn't have the evidence in hand at the time, in other words, if they didn't have a witness who was already saying, I'll come to trial and I will testify that he did exactly what you say he did, then, then you know, I would call that a lie. I mean, if you, if you represent that you have eyewitness testimony that you don't have, isn't that what we call a lie? Or does the legal field have a different definition of it? Well, sometimes witnesses uh, turn out to be unpleasant surprises. Agreed. And you think that they will be able to testify something, and it turns out that they either can't, uh, they change their story in the stand, or sometimes they just don't show up. I mean, you think you have them lined up, but uh, when it comes to trial day, you can't find them, uh, you know, unless you happen to have sequestered them ahead of time. But for witnesses, you typically would do that. Well, I agree uh, with you. There should be a political, you know, remedy to that, and you can vote the DA out. But in the meantime, it sounds as though a DA can bring false charges against people, claim to have the evidence, and then when he, when, when you show up at trial, say, ah, it turns out, Your Honor, I didn't have it, uh, you know, and no harm, no foul, and walk out the door because because they they want to harass somebody. for. And this is the same DA who has declined to prosecute against people who have Antifa beliefs uh, and and then gone ahead and prosecuted a conservative like Joey Gibson, apparently for his political beliefs, and and then didn't have what they promised to have. It just sounds like something where there there ought to be a remedy that says you got to punish people for making false representations to a judge. Well, um, I suppose that Mr. Gibson's lawyer and they could file a bar complaint if they. Well, felt they're that they're they going to federal court. Enough. They tell me. Uh, uh, but I was going to follow up on your your last yeah. point, which is the uh, the just you know seemingly disparate treatment of the um, 2020 protesters versus uh, the Joe Gibson crowd, which right. which uh, I have to say is the part of the case that I would find the most uh, vexing and maybe troubling is that. Uh, you know, I get there's prosecutorial discretion. I teach this in my class, and you know, there are so many crimes prosecutors can't prosecute every case. So they do have to pick and choose. But when you have the prosecutor announcing that as a matter of policy, his office would not prosecute the sole riot charges, only if the riot charge was attached to a, another, another charge. charge of a crime of violence or uh, serious property damage. Okay, that policy by itself, I... I mean, I think, okay, it makes sense. I'm, I'm up against a break, but uh, I, okay. I never thought I'd see political prosecutions in America. I thought that was for China and Cuba and Venezuela, but apparently we've got it here. That's Tung Yin from Northwestern School of Law. We'll be back with your calls on a First Amendment Friday. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. I make an incredible amount of use of the Internet on this show. I do it. I use it for research. We use it for sending audio files and all kinds of other things. So I guess you could say I have a dog in the fight in any discussion of net neutrality. But why the Democrats see uh, a desire uh, to bring about what they call net neutrality, uh, which I, I'm not I'm, I'm reasonably sure that an awful lot of people don't even understand what it means in practical terms. Well, now they want to bring it back again, except they never want to bring it back by actually passing uh, a measure through the Congress, although that may be coming now. James Chernowski is a senior policy analyst in technology and innovation at Americans for Prosperity. James, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So the last time that the Democrats did this, uh, if, if memory serves, it was under Obama, 
And they said, we're going to use the 1934 Communications Act when the Internet didn't exist because Al Gore hadn't invented it yet uh, to bring about net neutrality. And I would just love it if you'd explain to my audience what the practical side of what net neutrality would actually mean. Yeah, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. In the general setting, this was the this is the last time we saw it was underneath the Obama administration where they tried to classify Internet service providers to think about. Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, any of these like typical uh, companies that we get our TV and Internet from as more like traditional utility companies by using that Communications Act of 1934 to treat them like a, a traditional utility. So what ends up happening when you do that is that you see a, re- a reduction in the amount of investment that's going on in this space during the Obama years. And thankfully, we recognized that correctly. And then when President Trump got into office, his chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, reversed those rules uh, and really helped build out the resiliency of the U.S. uh, Internet service provider system in terms of building out capacity and building out uh, the ability of investment. So that way we can go and get Internet to more Americans. But, like, this is a really bad kind of policy situation because the government's just trying to throw a very heavy-handed regulation approach towards the provision of the internet. Now, I know that people are going to say, well, we we want net neutrality. We want the companies to be neutral. Help me out with this because, as I understand it, net neutrality would effectively forbid the people who provide internet to all of us uh, from charging for what you get. So if I'm somebody who just sends a few emails every day, I'm not. I'm somebody who uses the Internet a lot, then then I might pay a very small amount of money. If, on the other hand, I want first-class service, I want everything I send to arrive in a timely fashion, I want real-time broadband, maybe I'm a medical doctor who does telesurgery over the Internet, I need an absolutely uninterruptible line, and I want my use of it to have priority, well, then I have to pay for that. Is that is and that's and and being able to charge for what you get is effectively what net neutrality would forbid, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was certainly the premise of it, though. In terms of more practical terms, what was what we were seeing at the time for the debate, it was saying like, okay, one website was using getting a certain amount of web traffic, uh, and then you had the introduction of things like social media becoming a lot more popular and Netflix becoming more popular where there was just massive amounts of data getting pulled through the network. Uh, and it's just, it takes up a lot of, you know, internet traffic, right? So if we're going to prioritize making sure that Netflix can get their, their videos to you through the internet, then they needed to pay in order to make sure that they could, you know, support that. But, you know, they didn't want to see something like that happen. So we saw so, this debate so, around net neutrality come around as a result so of James, trying to avoid this discrimination. Net neutrality would effectively benefit some of the biggest users like Netflix. In fact, doesn't Netflix use an amazing percentage of all the Internet in, in the United States? And they want to get a, a sweet deal on that so that the rest of us effectively can end up paying more. Is that unfair to oh, say yeah. it that way? Oh, no, 100%. I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, again, when you're looking at what drives the most amount of web traffic. It's when you're looking at Netflix and video particularly, right? And then when you're upgrading the quality of that video from 1080 to 4K, let's say, right? That is even more straining because the quality of that video is more data that needs to be produced to process and send that through the Internet, right? So it gets very expensive 
if you're just saying, hey, we're going to go and, and sag that through all the web traffic where everybody else is trying to tap into it at the same time. Well, tell me this. Is there any way of saying that net neutrality, if the Democrats managed to push this through, would be good for average consumers and average users? Nope. <laughs> it would definitely not be good for uh, it would definitely not be good for consumers. Uh, like like when we had this experiment last time uh, with net neutrality, we did see a lowering of investment in broadband deployment. Uh, we didn't really see as much development uh, in that sector in general in terms of innovation and how we were going to go and improve getting uh, internet around. But now with the advent of 5G, uh, since the repeal of net neutrality, plus you know uh, not having those strict regulations on there. We're seeing companies invest more because they want to get the consumer better access to the Internet in general because that's what we want. That's what we clamor for. And that's a good thing. And net neutrality would go and put us in a step in the wrong direction. Well, and if you tell all the providers, you know, I do business with Comcast. I have a, a Comcast business line for my my uses because I need a higher level of service. So I, I buy a better quality of service. If you tell them you can't actually charge for what you're putting in the ground, all that fiber and all those other connections, then they have no incentive to go out and spend that money. And and if anything, it kind of throws it back to the government. The government will say, well, gee, uh, the, the big private companies aren't investing in this, so that means the taxpayers have to pay for it instead so that everybody can have high speed and download the latest edition of Stranger Things off Netflix or whatever the heck it is they're trying to download. It takes it out of the private sector and kind of pushes it in the direction of government, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's why we've seen a lot of broadband money get put towards, you know, by the government to develop government-owned networks. This was, like, famously done in Utah with iProvo. They spent millions oh, of dollars no. building up their own broadband My favorite network. example. Yeah. And they ended up having to sell it to Google for a dollar and offload all the debt because they were charging everybody, regardless of whether or not they had the service or not, a fee every month to go and service the debt. So that goes and shows you how bad it gets when government tries to get involved in managing the distribution and, and development of Internet projects like that. So I think that we need to be very careful about having the government get more involved in this space in general. And I think that, again, I, I think that most people don't realize just how fast our Internet is. Uh, in terms of, like, fastest speeds on average across the country, uh, across the world, rather, we're not necessarily, like, number one. But most people don't even need, like, that kind of speed to begin with. Like, you're an exception. You're a business guy. I do a lot of things on the Internet in terms of streaming and um, you know, doing a lot of stuff like you know, media interviews where I need that quality internet. But most people, the hundred you know megabytes per second stuff that we have is more than fine. And we just got to be careful about setting rules that would go and disincentivize these companies from investing and developing good products that can go and get consumers what they want. James, thanks for the work you do at Americans for Prosperity, and I appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That is James Chernowski, Senior Policy Analyst in Technology and Innovation at AFP. Pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll, at Lars Larson Show. Or you can go to my website. The vote counts the same at LarsLarson.com. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show 
and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I think America, and especially the Pacific Northwest, is incredibly blessed by God with the amount of trees that we have, the ultimate renewable resource. Now, that makes me start to sound like a greenie until I say, and you should cut them down regularly and replant them and do that in a sensible way. So when I saw that they had appointed a new man, a new staff person to head up the Urban and Community Forestry Assistance Program at the Oregon Department of Forestry, I thought, I'd like to talk to Scott Altenhoff, and I appreciate you coming on, Scott. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lars, for the opportunity to talk with you today about trees and urban forestry. So tell me this, where does the divide come? Your, your bailiwick is going to be only forests that are within cities in Oregon? And, and those yes. outside the city limits belong to the rest of the Department of Forestry or the federal government or, or perhaps some private landowners? That's correct. And then there's the gray area that we call the Wildland Urban Interface, the WUI, and that has been receiving increased attention in recent years for obvious reasons with the ongoing threat of wildfire. Uh, so that's a gray area that we're hoping to close the gaps on. And so... Um, my focus on urban forestry also extends to a limited extent in the urban-rural interface. So uh, okay. hoping to close that gap. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. But I, I'm curious, uh, Portland has, I think it still ranks as the single largest forest within a city limits. That would be in, in your territory then, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, in my work, I try to factor in my focus is in large part on maximizing the benefits of our urban and community trees and minimizing risks and liabilities and costs associated with that. Uh, so uh, doing whatever I can to empower folks to understand what the issues are and to give them the information and tools that they need to um, keep things healthy and to stimulate their economy and to uh, contribute in the various ways that trees are able to do so. Well, you've gone exactly where I wanted to go, Scott, and I'm curious. When you've got a big urban forest, I think Forest Park, for example, is 7,500 acres. There's there's nothing else in the Northwest that really comes close to that, right? Or, or are there That's some correct. big urban forests? Not that I know of. I think you're, you're absolutely correct there that Forest Park is one of the largest um, uh, forests uh, adjacent to uh, community the size of portland it's a it's a real gem should that in terms of keeping that a healthy forest and avoiding the risk would it be healthier if there was some logging done in there and replanting i like to think uh, that active management uh, I, I know for a fact that active management of forests um, is essential to keep those benefits maximized. And that active management, uh, various folks might have uh, different opinions or perspectives, but I know for certain that a hands-off approach, a laissez-faire or just uh, letting nature run its course is not uh, the correct way to manage an urban forest. So All right. uh, oftentimes thinning, fuels reduction, um, selective logging, uh, and it varies community by community. It's, there's not a right answer, one size fits all, for sure. Well, and I wouldn't assume there's a one size fits all. Every forest is different. Do they do enough logging of urban forests in Oregon right now to keep them healthy, or should they be doing more? That's a good question. I can't pretend to have insight into all communities. I, um, as you might remember, I recently 
came from the city of Eugene, and I can say I was very pleased with the amount of uh, work that was going on in our urban-rural interface that uh, involved fuels reduction work, um, restoration work, thinning work, and uh, different areas had different priorities. But um, I'm a big proponent of seeing urban wood used to the the highest extent possible. So urban wood utilization. I'm a big advocate for using our forests, our urban forests, to their highest use and helping them generate revenue wherever possible to help then reinvest into uh, a healthy urban forest. New tree planting. I'm also a fan of uh, workforce development projects where we're getting young folks out to learn how to take care of uh, their communities. Uh, it can be, in my case, it's been a, uh, a wonderful career, and I'd love to extend those opportunities to the, the next generation as well. Because you've been a tree guy on the private side of things for, for quite a while, haven't you? A commercial arborist, I guess, you know, they, they don't call you tree guys, but a commercial arborist, this is what you've done for most of your career, isn't it? That's correct. I've uh, worked in commercial arboriculture or tree care. I've also done a lot of forestry contracting, uh, doing exams, stand exams, and uh, surveys of various sorts and wildlife projects creating habitat trees for birds and uh, raptors and such. So, um, yeah, I feel very blessed, and I couldn't agree with you more that we are so fortunate here in the Pacific Northwest to have what we have, and um, I'd like to do my part to help perpetuate that, that wonderful legacy. Oh, well, and, and I'd like, if, if this is the attitude you're taking, I'd love it if they bring you over to the main part, because I think the State Department of Forestry severely underlogs the state forests. I mean, way below sustained yield, and I'm okay with sustained yield. Don't cut any more than you can grow, but shoot, we could be, we could be logging, as I understand the numbers, tens of millions of additional board feet of trees every year, and they choose not to, and I think we're just being set up for major fires down the road. What would you say to that? Yeah, I, do, I want to be careful not to stray out of my lane. My area of expertise <laughs> is definitely in urban forestry. However, um, once again, um, I think perspectives are changing, and slowly but surely, folks are recognizing, there, as you know, there's been a lot of political pressure to take a more hands-off approach, and we... Uh, nature has shown us that that's not always the right way in terms of... Um, maintaining the benefits of the forest and water quality and air quality. And uh, it's complicated, but I think we're moving into a better spot with forestry management where um, active, proactive management is uh, recognized to be a, uh, an important factor. And um, that can take various shapes. And once again, it's going to vary community by community. Uh, what applies on the east side of Oregon um, uh, may not be pertinent uh, in the coast range or in the Willamette Valley, but we we have to definitely stay adaptive and uh, listen to what uh, the site contexts are telling us. One last comment, Scott, and we'll look forward to having you back another time, but it's always struck me that when they say, oh, there's not enough money to do proper forest management, Forests, if properly managed, should be able to generate enough revenue to at least pay for their own care, if not spin off some extra profits. Do you think that's true? 
Absolutely. That is what I'm, um, it's a paradigm shift that I'm, uh, and many of um, my colleagues are involved working to help people recognize that forests are regenerating systems. And our challenge is really to understand what they need to keep that uh, continual cycle uh, going. And that involves managing trees when they're alive but also managing trees when they're not alive and, and putting them to the highest use. And that could be milling. That could be utilization for mass timber. We've got some amazing structures, airport, uh, the airports and the new Hayward Field that's going to be hosting the World Cha uh, Track and Field Championships. We could be doing a lot to stimulate our economy and benefit our environment and our, our uh, broader culture, individuals and communities. So... I'm uh, well, I, I'm hopeful, and call me Pollyanna, but I'm I'm hoping that we've <laughs> crossed a threshold, and the the old tensions and conflicts of uh, previous years we're moving beyond that. Uh, Let's hope so. I get called Pollyanna too from time to time, and a lot of other names. That's Scott Altanoff, the newly appointed Urban and Community Forestry Assistance Program Manager. Let's stop talking about our inability to respond to crime. That, if it wasn't so crazy, if it didn't leave so very many dead people in the streets of Portland, Mayor Ted Wheeler's pathetic whining, please stop talking about this problem, would actually be kind of funny. It's not, because it does leave a lot of dead and damaged people behind it. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome to the Radio Northwest Network, serving the Northwest with honestly provocative talk radio. And I will get back to your phone calls and emails in a moment. But I want to talk to my friend, retired police captain C.W. Jensen, about this. C.W., this is, this is my thought on Ted Wheeler begging that they stop talking about crime. Yesterday, I looked at it this way. The mayor of the 25th biggest city in America begged his fellow commissioners and his own police chief to stop talking about the critical shortage of police officer, officers that leaves Portlandia awash in violent crime and a record rate of homicides. Stop talking about that. Let's stop talking about our inability to respond to crime. Let's stop advertising to criminals that they're going to get away with it. CW, it seems to me the criminals were way ahead of Ted on this one. They already know they can get away with it. And telling people about it is merely informing the public of the dire situation we find ourselves in because of the bad mistakes of feckless Ted Wheeler. What's your take on it? Well, I think that everybody needs to know, the taxpaying citizens of Portland, that Ted's, Ted's priorities are ending systemic racism, ending climate change, um, and police reform. Nowhere in those three is there public safety. Ted Wheeler, remember, in 2016, before he was elected, and I'm not saying his predecessor was an all-star, but there were 20 homicides in 2016. There's yep. 90 last year, at least because there's some arguing about uh, different things, but there are at least 90 and we're at like 65 now. I, so, and this is the first thing you've heard from Ted in ages is that he's, he's upset that people are talking about this. Now, remember, he's the one that got rid of the gang violence reduction team. He's the one that said, you know what? We're not going to, for the sake of equity, whatever that means, we're not going to stop people for expired tags, no brake lights, um, anything. And so it has given, you can't blame a criminal 
for being a criminal when they're not afraid of getting caught. No, and in fact, when they tagged almost all of those changes, the defunding of the police, let's stop the traffic stops, they said, we're stopping too many people of color. Well, like it or not, even the FBI backs this up, the majority of the homicides in a city that has a a black male population of about 3%, the majority of the uh, homicides are committed by black men, and the majority of their victims are black people. So if you care about Black Lives Matter, you should care that the police have been put in a position where they let people get away with crimes, including crimes that take a disproportionate number of black lives. If you care about them, do you care about the black criminal more or the black murder victim more? But see, here's the deal about Ted. When he's going to his cocktail parties with his Democrat elites, he doesn't want to say, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to kick some butt in the next year. We are going to be extremely aggressive. And I'm going to tell everybody, you can make a complaint about the police, but too bad. It's not going anywhere past me. And just say, you know, if you're tagging, we're taking you down. If you're driving a stolen car, we're taking you down. If you, you have all these traffic lights, we're taking you down. And if you look like a gang member, you're probably a gang member. And remember, this focused intervention team that posts a recovered gun every time they get a gun, which is, I find, pedantic. But um, they have to deal with a group of citizens who have absolutely no idea of what's going on, except that the police hate black people. At least that's what they're told, and Ted won't push back on that. And then he turns around and talks about, in fact, play the need resources soundbite, if you would, Dusty. First responders need the tools, the resources, the training, and the personnel to be able to do their jobs effectively and safely. That does not mean there should not be accountability. There should be that, too. It's a both and. It's not an either or. Now, hold on. He says they need the resources. Then he says, we acknowledge we're 200 short. Stop talking about it. But then he says, we have to do the job with what we've got. No, as the city council, I mean, CW, you were a cop. You had a dog in the fight. I've never been a cop. But when I look at a city that said that this year their budget is $6 billion uh, and they spend 5% of it on the cops. They spend about $250 million on the cops out of a $6 billion budget. If public safety is your number one priority, you don't spend 5% on your number one priority and 95% literally on everything else and then say, if we're 200 cops short, we can't do anything about it. Yes, you can. But he, he turns around and says, you have to have the resources, but then says, but the fact that we're 200 cops short, we're just going to have to do it with what we've got. Well, how does that make any sense? And by the way, I think, CW, we may have hit that point because when the chief showed up and talked about something and his boss, the mayor, said, stop talking about that, stop talking about it, I think that little relationship may be about to change. And maybe Chuck Lavelle will stand up and tell the mayor, we'll do the job or you can fire me, but you're not going to keep me in the job not doing the job. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. 
You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.